This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company, and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a thousand agents across the country and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents, I trust it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's gotta be a better way. There is real estate agents. I trust.com. And go for Mike Slater in three. Two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Crazy week last week, and uh, it's only getting crazier. A little later, we're going to talk about, we'll get our, get our politics hat on, talk about how Ted Cruz His two most important states coming up are Indiana, not this Tuesday, but the next, because Trump's going to win all the states pretty much next week. But there's a giant asterisk on Pennsylvania because only 17 of Pennsylvania's delegates are bound. The other 54 are are unbound and and on the ballot, but people don't know who those delegates are supporting. So it's it's Cruz could walk away with more delegates, like way more delegates than Trump. In Pennsylvania, even though Trump may win the popular vote in Pennsylvania, what a, oh my gosh. So anyway, Trump will probably win all the states next week, but then it's Indiana. Huge opportunity for Cruz. Got a few more states every week. And then the granddaddy of them all is California on June 7th. Now that's, what, six weeks away, but it's really only three. Because as we mentioned last week, 70% of California's voters are mail-in ballots. And those mail-in ballots go out May 10th the week after Indiana. So two weeks for Ted Cruz in Indiana and then a week in California hitting it hard. Mail-in ballots go out, stay out for, uh, I guess, like a month, right? And, and then Cruz will be in California because that's the last stand. That is all in at the poker table for uh, for Ted Cruz to try to keep Trump from 1237. So it's crazy. It's exciting, and uh, it's coming down to the end here. And, of course, we're going to be in Cleveland at the convention uh, in a couple months now. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Next hour, I want to tell a story about Frank. It's a story that won't happen anymore. And and I I hate to say it, and you're going to hear this story, and you're going to love it. I mean, this America was built on stories like Frank. And I'm telling you straight up, it will not happen anymore. Not like this. We'll do that. And uh, in the next last hour, I want to talk about, and it sort of ties into what we're going to kick it off with, but I want to talk about some advancements that exist today that make all of us wealthier than anyone in human history, but economists can't quantify it they can't put a value on it like how do you put a value on penicillin 
Like it's like like a GDP value. Like you, you can't compare the wealth of people today with the wealth of people 100 years ago because people 100 years ago didn't have penicillin. A couple of weeks ago, we told the story of um, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge's son, when he was 14, he died from a blister on his toe. He was playing tennis on the White House. He got a blister, got a staph infection, and died. And the reason he he died, everyone knew he had a staph infection, but he died because penicillin wasn't invented for like another 10 years. This was the president, the sitting president's son. How do you quantify the value of penicillin? And and a few other things that I want to talk about uh, a little later. Busy show. I want to get right to uh, this story right here. I love this story because it can mean a lot of different things depending on where you are in your life right now. And I'm hesitant to even analyze it because I don't want to put you in a box on how to interpret this. I can make it political easily if you want. Um, I could direct this story specifically to Bernie and Hillary supporters who think that capitalism is immoral. That's how they talk about capitalism now. It's immoral. So we need to help have a government create a moral economy. I love that, right? And I love people, oh, I'm going to go on a rant. I love people bashing capitalism on Twitter. It's great. A, Twitter, a company that hasn't made a dime of profit in 10 years, is entirely held up by rich venture capitalists and investors. And people complaining on Twitter, uh, complaining about capitalism while typing on their Apple computers that has a 40% profit margin, complaining about Walmart's greed and their 3% profit margins. Like, what is wrong? People have just lost their way. Everyone is so dizzy and confused and has no concept or even desire to know the truth. We're just not thinking clearly anymore. We're not thinking clearly. People, I think just that very premise right there. Walmart's greedy, right? 3% profit margin at Walmart. Three. Apple computers, righteous and wonderful. 40% profit margin. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling Apple immoral, but like, what what are you doing? How could you complain about one, not the other? Anyway, we're not thinking clearly. came across this story the other day. <clears throat> it's a letter written by Flavius Stan. Flavius? I think it's Flavius. Could that be right? Flavius? Flavius? I don't know. He wrote it in 1995. He was 17 at the time. He calls it the Night of Oranges. Short story. It was Christmas Eve. 1989, not too long ago, Romania. Now, the communist dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, was disposed, overthrown. And on Christmas Day, he was executed by firing squad. But this is Christmas Eve, and there's a calm in the town. And Flavius and his friends wanted to go see a movie. This is what he said. You know, he talks about how he wanted to go see a movie with his buddies, but there's a rumor that there will be oranges for sale tonight. 
This is 1989. Now, keep in mind, this is not the year 30 BC. I mean, 1989. There's a rumor that there will be oranges for sale tonight. Hundreds of people are already waiting in line. Now, we're used to such lines under the former communist government. Lines for bread, lines for meat, lines for everything. Families would wait much of the day for rationed items. As children, we would take turns for an hour or more holding our family's place in line. But this line is different. There are children in Romania who don't know what an orange looks like. It's a special treat. Having the chance to eat a single orange will keep a child happy for a week. It will also make him a hero in the eyes of his friends. And for the first time, someone's selling oranges by the kilo. Suddenly, I want to do something important. I want to give my brother a big surprise. He's only eight years old. And I want him to celebrate Christmas with lots of oranges at the table. I also want my parents to be proud of me. So I forget about going to the movie. I leave my friends and I join the line. Now people in this line, they're not silent, upset, and frustrated as they were before the revolution. They're talking to one another about life and politics and the new situation in our country. The oranges are sold out of the back doorway of a food shop. The clerk has gone from anonymity to unexpected importance. As he handles the oranges, he acts like a movie star in front of his fans. He moves his arms in an exaggerated manner as he tells the other workers where to go and what to do. All I can do is stare at the stack of cardboard boxes piled higher than me. I've never seen so many oranges in my life. Finally, it's my turn. It's 8 o'clock. I've been waiting for six hours. Six hours. It doesn't seem like a long time because my mind has been flying from the oranges in front of me to my brother and my parents and then back to the oranges. I hand over the money I was going to spend on the movie and watch each orange being thrown into my bag. I try to count them, but I lose count. I am drunk with the idea of oranges. I put the bag inside my coat as if I want to absorb their warmth. They aren't heavy heavy at all. And I feel that this is going to be the best Christmas of my life. I begin thinking of how I'm going to present my gift. I get home and my father opens the door. He's amazed when he sees the oranges. And we decide we can't even hide them until dinner. Can't even hide them. I gave my brother the present. Everyone is silent. They can't believe it. My brother doesn't even touch them. He's afraid even to look at them. Maybe they aren't real. Maybe they are an illusion, like everything else these days. We have to tell him he can eat them before he has the courage to touch one of the oranges. I stare at my brother eating the oranges. And my parents are proud of me. Oranges. Oranges. In 1989. Romania. 1980. Oranges. Oranges. Like, changed this kid's life. 
waiting in six hours in line for an orange. Throws it on the table, and the, the kids, the fam, like, what, what, are the, what is this? What are, okay, I've never seen so many oranges. Wow. Little perspective, right? I'm going to end it there. I want to take a break. I got I got a ton to say about it. I read this story that I was like, unbelievable. These kids are freaking out about oranges, Eric. And just, is this clear? Like, this isn't, uh, you know, we were sharing some stories a couple weeks ago about um, how people in London, we're talking about Trafalgar Square in London, which I think was built in, oh, geez, 1820, maybe. And the sculptor was in charge of sculpting lions, and he's never seen a lion. So it's like, you know, 1850s, maybe. And the guy's never seen a lion. Okay. That's crazy because that's only, you know, 150 years ago or whatever. Um, never seen a lion before. It's interesting. But these, these guys, 30 years ago, an orange. Greatest day of their life. What does that mean to you? What does this story mean to you? I didn't analyze it in the beginning because I, I, want, I wanted to leave it to you because it could mean different things in your life depending on where you are, and I don't want to put you in a box. So what does that story mean to you? one 3393 or Slater Radio on Twitter. It's Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company and it went into business, I think three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond and they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a thousand agents across the country and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents, I trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's gotta be a better way. There is. Real estate agents, I trust.com. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I, I think of this boy. I love that story so much. And the people in this city in Romania, it's 1989, not that long ago, who have never seen an orange. And they stand in line for six hours for the chance to eat an orange and for decades they stood in line for rations and all those times all that time they were angry they were frustrated they were starving they never talked to each other but the day after the communist dictator was overthrown people were in line talking to each other again they were excited about this future and the boy gets some oranges and he brings them home to his brother and he's amazed his brother doesn't think they're real and his parents said they were proud of their son you know, one thing I love about the story is that uh, Flavian didn't want the oranges for him. Did you notice that? He bailed on his friends and a fun time that they were going to have to do something for his younger brother and his parents. And, and what a lesson for us to be 
grateful. Uh, I was at a Costco just the other day doing my normal routine, right? And I, so I walked to the, the, the dairy section, right? Run in there, freezing cold, run right out. Go into the vegetables. I'm going to pick up my, uh, our greens for the week. And on the way, in between, I walk by giant stack of pineapples. $2.99 for a whole pineapple. And I walked by and I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't think anything of this fruit that requires three years to grow. Did you know that? One pineapple takes three years to grow. Crazy. So think of all the people that it took to make this pineapple appear in front of me for $2.99. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to. And then I think of this boy and all the people in Romania in 1989 who've never seen an orange and stood in line for six hours at the chance to maybe get an orange. The thing that stood out the most to me is the fact that for decades, they would, before the revolution, they would st- under communism, they would stand in line all day for rations. And when they stood in line, they were frustrated. They were angry. They were starving. They never talked to each other. But the day after the communist dictator was overthrown, people were talking to each other again. They were excited about the future. It brought people together. Communism separates. Communism shatters hope, separates relationships, separates people from each other. Remember we talked to the defector from North Korea. And she talked about how in, in North Korea, everyone's skeptical of everyone. Everyone is, is eyes and ears for the government trying to rat out the other person. In America, in a free country, we work together, we lift each other out. So this boy stands in line with all these people having a great time, buys some oranges, and then brings them home and his brother's amazed. His family's amazed. He doesn't think they're real. I'm walking through Costco. I see a pineapple. I'm like, yeah, whatever. What the heck? What's wrong with me? I should be freaking out that there's pineapples here for $2.99. And you're saying, oh, Slater, that's silly. No, we should. We take so much. Everyone takes everything for granted. Quick timeout. Quick timeout. How good are you at hiding things on your face? Steph's probably listening right now. My wife is terrible at it. Oh my God. She's the worst liar ever. <laughs> and she's the worst secret keeper ever. If something makes her happy, she can't keep it in. If something makes her upset, she can't keep it in. She has a passionate heart. And I think it's, I think it's in Luke. The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. It's true with my wife's facial expressions. My wife, if she's listening now, she just texted me. My wife has an overflowing heart. She can't hide it from her face. We as conservatives, as defenders of capitalism and the American way of life, we need to have an overflowing heart of gratitude for our prosperity. We need to be so amazed at what everyone else takes for granted, at what we take for granted. We need to be so amazed that people think we're weird. Like, what's up with that guy? Like, every time we use our cell phone, every time we eat tropical food, whenever we benefit from capitalism, we need to be overjoyed by it because everyone else takes it for granted. And when people take capitalism for granted, when people take uh, prosperity for granted, they get jaded, they get angry, they become entitled, become ungrateful start to turn on the people who make us prosperous and then turn to the government for help and prosperity. 
That's what that is. Like the reason people hate capitalism so much is because we take it for granted. We become entitled. So we turn to the government for help. Don't let anyone else become ungrateful. But the way to do that is for us to be grateful. We have to have an overflowing heart for America and capitalism. We need to look at a stack of pineapples and say, that's incredible. How did these pineapples get here? For $2.99. Unbelievable. The people who, the farmers who made it, the equipment, people who made the equipment, the farming uh, 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 techniques, they put it on a boat from, uh, from Hawaii, and then it came to the port, and then a truck brought it here, and it's $2.99. How is that possible? Overflowing heart of gratitude. Let me say one last thing. I misspoke the other day. I, uh, I called capitalism a, a system. I didn't, I didn't I, well, I guess I did. I, m- more than anything, I fell into Bernie's trap in referring to capitalism as a system. It's not a system. Actually, I got to take a break. I'll come back. I'll explain what it is, what it actually is. But again, we need an overflowing heart of gratitude for capitalism and the prosperity around us. And then people will start to appreciate capitalism because once they appreciate capitalism, they're not going to bash it anymore. And honestly, truly, people will think you're weird, but on behalf of our friend from Romania, be amazed next time you eat an orange. Slater Radio on Twitter. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Coming up next, uh, I was able to introduce Ted Cruz at his speech in San Diego the other day. I want to play for you uh, our introduction speech. See what you think. It's coming up next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Slater, thanks for being here. So Ted Cruz was in San Diego last week, uh, his first California appearance, and I had the, uh, the, the privilege of introducing him. Um, I want to play my speech. So first of all, they gave me four minutes. It was a bad idea to give a radio guy a microphone and a stage and a crowd and a time limit. Uh, so it turned into 14 minutes. But I laid out three characteristics I want out of a president. Now, I will never tell you who to vote for in a primary like this. I don't think that's my job. You're smart. I just laid out these three characteristics, and it's totally up to you to decide. First of all, if, if you agree with those, that you want those characteristics, you may, you may not want those characteristics out of a president. Obviously, I would like more than these three, but uh, you may not want these three at all. Uh, and then also, if you think that that applies to Ted Cruz, and, and now listen, there's varying degrees. Uh, you know, maybe I wish some of them applied more to Ted or whatever. Um, but it's totally up to you. If you think these characteristics apply to Ted Cruz, Trump, or Kasich, because those are the three that we have remaining. Um, but this is what I laid out at the Ted Cruz rally, and, and I'm curious what you think. Enjoy. America's the greatest country in the world. And San Diego's America's finest city. I love it. I love it. What an honor to be here. When I say Ted, you say Cruz. Ted. Cruz. 
Ah, this is awesome. Who here? Ted Cruz is up next, but I may not get off the stage. You don't give a radio guy a microphone and tell him to hurry it up. I'm sorry, Ted. Who here was in the very beginning of the Tea Party movement a couple years back? Raise your hand. I was thinking back on the beginnings of that and what we wanted out of a president then, right? Now, of course, we wanted someone who understands the Constitution, right? Who understands that the Constitution's not there to limit you, it's there to limit them. Nah, Ted Cruz knows that. That's easy. I'm not going to talk about that. Real quick, Jan mentioned that uh, Ted Cruz is a lawyer and got a couple like hisses from the crowd. But let me tell you this. Alan Dershowitz, y'all familiar with him? Like, like communist lawyer, like on the left, way over here on this side of the stage. No offense, guys. He's a, 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 a professor at Harvard Law, right? He said Ted Cruz is the smartest, most brilliant student he's ever had in 50 years. What? Think about that. 50 years of Harvard Law, Alan Dershowitz says Ted Cruz is the smartest ever. And I'll tell you, after seven years of a community organizer as president, That's my last Obama reference, I promise. But it's time we have a real constitutional scholar. All right, now, understanding our Constitution, that's good. Being smart, that's good. But I want to talk about some life characteristics that I think are important for being president. I want to know if the group of a couple thousand my friends here agree. Amen? First thing for, oh, I like that. First of all, let's hear it for these people up here, too, by the know who they are, but they're like, I got a sneeze and I don't know what to do. I got a niche in my nose and I don't know what to do. You're doing God's work. Thank you guys for being there. I want a president who will choose the right path, even if it's the difficult path. Socrates told the story called the story of Hercules and I want to share it here real quick John Adams wanted this to be the seal of the United States of America you ready Hercules alone in the woods two women come up to him the first woman says follow me Hercules and I will give you a life of luxury and ease $15 an hour minimum wage <laughs> free health care and you can keep your doctor that's what she promised. She promised a bed of roses and a cloud of perfume and rainbows and unicorns and a life of no worries at all. Then a second woman came up to Hercules and said, Hercules, follow me, but I got to tell you something. There is nothing truly valuable that can be purchased without pain and hardship. That woman offers the path of ease. I offer the path that is long and difficult. And she pointed off to a mountain way off in the distance. Now, Hercules, of course, chose that path. 
That's the path of virtue. And John Adams wanted that to be the seal of America because he knew that the path of virtue was the only way that America could even be the shining city upon a hill. There's only one way. There's one way. I gotta unbutton my jacket here, getting fired up. There's only one way to get to the top of that hill. There's no shortcuts. You gotta choose the path of virtue, and I want a man who will do that every time, even when it's long and difficult. And in a culture that we live in today, where the left is always talking about shortcuts, free everything, this choice is more important now than ever before. And I want a man who understands that. That's point one, cool? When I say tet, no, I'm just joking. I want a president who's an extremist. Ooh. All the cameras said, oh, we're going somewhere now. He's gonna say something that's gonna make news. No, 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 no. Who here has been called an extremist before? Right, all right, me too. It's a bad word, right? Bad word, you don't wanna be an extremist. Martin Luther King Jr. was called an extremist. And he said, you know, at first I didn't like being called an extremist, but then I learned to really like being called an extremist. He said, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. We hold these truths that all men are created equal. These are extremist positions. So the question is, the question's not, will we be extremists? The question is, what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for injustice or for justice? Now, excuse me, and I would only say this at a Ted Cruz rally. But Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that on Calvary Hill, there were three men who were crucified. And they were all guilty of the same crime of being extremists. Two of them were guilty of being extremely immoral. And thus, they fell below their environment. But Jesus Christ was guilty of being an extremist for love and for hope and for courage, and therefore he rose above. And that's why Martin Luther King Jr. said, perhaps the nation and the world are in need of more extremists. And I know the people of San Diego, good people, good people. And we want a president who's an extremist for love, justice, integrity, and honesty. Are you with me? So point number one, I want a president who chooses the difficult path, right? The right path, even if it's the difficult path. I want a president who's an extremist for love. Third point, and I'm sorry if this offends anyone, but I want a president, I want a man who prays.
Because a man who prays is a man who is humble. All right, we'll stop it there. Uh, just, this is my last uh, of the three points, and we'll pick it up right when we get back. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, uh, about a week ago, Ted Cruz was in town here in San Diego, and uh, it was his first time in California, and uh, I was able to introduce him to the stage. So I'm laying out three characteristics that I want out of a president. Um, Not saying you necessarily need to agree with these characteristics. These are just three things I find important, and totally up to you to decide if uh, it's Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or uh, Kasich who best represents these characteristics if you think they're important. Uh, so we laid out the first two and, and here is um, the third one. My third characteristic is I want someone, uh, as president as a man who prays because a man who prays generally is a man who is humble. Here's my last point. Who here's seen the movie gladiator? Yeah. The men were like, who? So I'm going to watch it right now when I get home. Do you remember the scene early in the movie when Caesar meets with Maximus? That's Russell Crowe's character, remember? And Caesar says, Maximus, when I die, I want you to be the protector of Rome. Will you accept this honor that I have offered you? And Maximus says, with all my heart, no. And Caesar says, That is why it must be you, the reluctant leader. I love it. The best man for the job is always the man who really doesn't want the job because they're a humble man. uh, George Washington was like that. George Washington didn't want the job. He turned it down twice. And when he finally took it, they didn't know what to call him. John Adams said, how about we call you, ready for this? His elective majesty. (laughs) And he said, no, no, we're not going to go with that. Okay, how about his mightiness? (laughs) Or his highness? Those were real proposals on what to call this new position. You know what George Washington went with? President. That's it. The most low-key, no-frills, simple, basic, no-ego title possible. Once again, we need a president who is humble. Now, last thing here, last thing here, I'm getting the hook. A lot of people think humble means weak, right? So then they think that we need someone who's prideful because that means they're strong. I'll tell you, our greatest generation is not just the greatest generation because they stormed the beaches. They stormed the beaches and never bragged about it. Have you ever heard a World War II veteran boast about their service? No way. They're humble. But don't you ever call them weak. I dare you. I saw a 95-year-old World War II veteran the other day. You could have taken me out. No problem. Don't call them weak. They're humble. 
And that's what makes them the greatest. Now, you can be arrogant and make a lot of money. That's one definition of success, right? Fair, fair. But you can't be arrogant and lead movements. And what this country needs more than anything is a movement. We don't need a highness. We don't need an elective majesty. We don't need someone who aspires to be the most powerful man in Rome. We need someone who more than anything doesn't want these things. But if he must, he will serve with all of his heart and none of his pride. We need strength. We need power. We need conviction. And more important than anything, we need humility. Strength, strength without humility is a tyrant. Because the man who's going to talk next will tell you that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exhausted, exalted. I'll end with, and exhausted. Can you imagine how exhausted he is after going, doing this? I'm exhausted. I've been talking for five minutes. I'll end with this. Major Dick Winters, Band of Brothers. Y'all seen that HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers? Got to watch it. Dick Winters, one of the greatest commanders in World War II history. He would often go into the wilderness to pray alone. And he said the sun shining through the clouds and reflecting off the trees and the flowers, he said that's the best place to pray. Because in nature, you'll notice that God has given us the most magnificent stained glass windows you'll ever see. I want a president who takes the time to pray to the creator of life and to the source of our rights. Now, that may be extreme, but it's the foundation on which our entire country is established on, and I think we should try it again. So here we go. A man who takes the long and difficult path a man who's an extremist for truth, and a man who prays that's who I want as President of the United States, and that's who San Diego wants as the President of the United States. And that's why it's an honor to be here. The full introduction video of it, if you want to watch it, is on our Facebook page. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. This is The Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter. Appreciate you taking uh, some time out of your Saturday to be with us. And I want to kick off this hour with a great honor. Someone I have been wanting to talk to for many years. A great privilege. Uh, Please Google Ken Robinson and TED. Uh, You've probably seen it before. Ken Robinson has given the most popular TED Talk of all time. He's given a few. He's got a new book. Uh, it's called Creative Schools, The Grassroots Revolution That is Transforming Education. And Sir Ken Robinson is with us right now. How are you today, sir? 
I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Really good to talk to you. So, love your book. Um, I love how you talk about we need a critique of the way things are, a vision of how they should be, and a theory of change of how to move from one to the other. So we get the critique part on this show. We talk a lot about the critique part. Um, I want to talk about the vision for a minute. Yeah. What could our education system look like? Well, it could be a system where every uh, every child who goes through it discovers not just all the important things they know, need to know about the world around them, but they discover more about their own talents, their abilities, where they leave school feeling you know, skilled and confident about the, the next step they're going to take, where they move into a whole variety of different paths according to their talents, you know, some to college, some to work, some to vocational programs, uh, and where there are really strong links between the school, the community, where schools become hubs of community vitality and and growth and development. All those things happen, by the way, in schools around the country. There are great schools uh, all over America. But the sad problem, as you said in the critique part, is that there's this big culture of standardization, which is, I think, holding a lot of schools back from being the sorts of vibrant places they could be and should be. So I love that. Why can't we just do what you just said about, you know, vibrant centers of community? Why can't we just do that now in the system we have? You know, we can, and uh, and there are lots of examples, Mike, in the book about that. Um, you know, I, I, I did that TED Talk, as you mentioned. Uh, that, the one in 2006 is the one that's been seen most often. That's about 38 million views, I think, now. And, um, and you know, it's 18 minutes. You know, some people have said to me, you know, this is great. You tell us the problem, but you don't tell us what the answer is. And I think, well, there's a couple of reasons. Like, <laughs> one of them is it's an 18-minute talk. You know, give me a break. <laughs> but, yeah. but, yeah. Solve, it, I wish I could solve the world in an 18-minute speech. <laughs> That's right. But it's not because there aren't answers. It's just you can't talk about all that stuff in, in a short sure. presentation. But the book does set these things out. And it's not just since the TED Talk. I've been in education all my life and, and worked with all kinds of districts and countries. And I know these principles work. I mean, they, it's not a theory. It, it's, it's what does work. And there are great schools around the country. But in America, and I should say I live here in America now, I'm not far from you, I live up in LA and have been for 15 years, <clears throat> but I get to travel around a lot. Um, one of the, actually, one of the schools I feature in the book is High Tech High, which is right, mm-hmm. right there on your doorstep, and that attracts visitors from all around the world because it has a really interesting approach to practical work, project work, collaboration, across the arts and the sciences, uh, technology, and they get fantastic results. And uh, you know, that's why I'm saying it's, it's one of a number of examples, and um, it's not a theory. Sure. There are lots of different ways of doing school. Partly it's because this culture of testing has been holding people back. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a really powerful influence on schools. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and there's a lot attached to whether people do well on these tests or not. But also in schools themselves, and I don't say this in criticism of teachers or principals, but there's a lot of room for maneuvering schools, and sometimes people don't see it and don't take it. So part of what I'm encouraging in the book is for people to see the room for innovation in the system as it is, while we also work to try and change these, these larger pressures that bear down on schools. Yes, and I want to talk about those too. I guess my question with that is, we see the best practices, like you talked about with high-tech high and all the rest. We see, the, we see what works. It's not a theory, as you said. So what's the holdup? Like, why? So we have 100 high schools in San Diego. Why aren't they all doing creative things like high-tech high? Um, I, well, you'd have to go to each school and find out. I, I think the, there are 
uh, a number of uh, restraints. I mean, one of them, I say, is habit and custom and practice. Mm. Um, I'm sure among the older the high schools, there are also fantastic schools as well. They don't all have to look like high-tech. High. I'm not saying there's one model and just one way of doing it. Um, sometimes it's because, you know, the, the, there might be some funding restraints. and some, But sometimes, I'm not talking about your particular schools, I don't know the ones you mean, yeah. but as I travel around the country, sometimes it's just custom and practice. Like, we always did it this way, we're going to carry on doing it this yeah. way. But the fact is, you can, uh, you can transform schools with the right sort of leadership and the right kind of vision for them. And there isn't just one way to do it, there are lots of ways of doing it. You know, there's a whole band of schools in the middle of the country called A-plus schools, which use the arts in particular as a transformative process. Uh, you know, and a lot of these ideas have been around a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm not on the board. I'm not on commission. So, you know, I can say it freely, you know, but I, I've been to see a number of Montessori schools. You know, Maria Montessori in the elementary area, you know, she she was practicing a lot of these principles, you know, over 100 years ago in, in, in Italy with working class kids. You know, we, we, we do know that these principles work and play out in a lot of different ways they can play out. But I think, if you ask me, to, I'm not talking about the schools in San Diego, sure. but I'm just as a generalization, I think sometimes it, it needs, people need to feel permission to change, you know, that yeah. we end up sometimes doing things just because we always did it and because we've become used to it. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, if, if you can see the need for change, it, it, that's, that's much more likely to, to bring it about. So one size fits all. Um, I think that's a lot what our education system looks like. Um, and that makes no sense at all. Um, but you, you made the argument that it, it made sense, perhaps, when the system was developed with the Industrial Revolution. Can you speak on that for a minute? It made more sense. You know, I'm always keen to point this out, that these systems of mass education that we have, that we take for granted now, you know, we, we assume that the kids reach school age and off they go. Uh, incidentally, in some countries, they don't go as early as they do in America, and we don't teach them to read and write as early as they do here. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that you spend the greater part of your childhood in a school is, is not an idea that's been around since the dawn of time. It's a relatively recent idea. Uh, you know, people used to work in the fields and go on and, and do agricultural work and, and live a totally different life. The reason we've got these mass systems is uh, the Industrial Revolution. Most of them came about in the mid to late 19th century as people moved into the cities to work in the factories and build the roads and the railways and all of those things. And there was a need for an, a, a workforce educated differently in, in sort of basic uh, mathematics and reading, you know, reading, writing, and so on. Uh, that was the majority of people. That's why we had big, a big band of elementary schools, and a smaller group went off to college to become the professionals and the administrators. It's why there was a small number of universities compared to a lot of elementary schools. It, it was based, based on an economic model in part. It's not the only factor, but it was a big factor. And schools were kind of modeled almost in the image of, of industrialization. If you think about how a, a lot of the schools work still, you know, kids are educated, they, they are accepted and educated in age groups. And you would just get used to that idea, but we don't, you know, the idea that kids go through the school, the whole career, all, all the eight-year-olds, all the nine-year-olds, all the ten-year-olds shunting through year by year, it makes it a kind of organizational device. It's not an educational device because... <laughs> Some kids at 10 are capable of doing things that other kids at 4 uh, might be capable of doing. It depends what, what we're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. You know, kids grow and develop at different rates, even though there are some patterns there. Um, but we don't outside schools. We don't keep all the five-year-olds in a separate compound and away from the 10-year-olds. It's just a school <laughs> thing. And, uh, and we don't have to do that. There are ways of organizing schools where we can mix the age groups up according to what the activity is. So there are some uh, organizational 
features of schools which which we owe to the, the efficiency ideas of the industrial revolution there's no question about that and it's partly those i think we should we should be questioning and saying it's the better way to do it and, and clearly there is fascinating um so a lot of people will say that uh the the, the hindrance in quality education are is poverty and parents not being involved in their kids education uh what do you make of those two influences i think the second is more important than the first uh, there's no, no question about it that, that poverty is a major depressant on people's aspirations. It's not invariably the case uh, at all. I mean, there are you know, wonderful examples of people who are running terrific schools in hard-pressed areas of high unemployment, low income, uh, you know, areas where it's otherwise uh, very difficult areas of crime and disaffection. I was, for example, I, I was, did an interview the other day uh, for a, a new program called Kidspiration. I was interviewed by a 12-year-old lad who's at the, uh, the Roy Clark Academy um, down in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in Alabama. And, you know, that's a, an amazing school, which is in a very difficult part of the city uh, with all kinds of, of crime surrounding it and drug problems. But the school has just a fantastic internal culture. A lot of the book, the, the, the examples I give in the in the book are of schools which are in very difficult areas, which have been turned around by passionate, committed, and very focused teaching and head teachers. So you know, poverty can be an issue. I mean, I come from you know, a working class area myself in the north of England, in Liverpool, you know, which had no advantages whatever. And you know, I'm not giving my own case as some shiny example. I'm saying it was it was a very good line once put there by. Uh, George Kelly, the American psychologist, who said that nobody should be a victim of their own biography. You know, that, that, your, you know, that your biography is not destiny. Yeah. And that's right. I mean, there are all kinds of wonderful examples in the States of people coming from really unauspicious backgrounds and doing wonderful things with their lives. So it's not an automatic gearing, but the statistics are pretty convincing that overall, kids who come from poor backgrounds do less well at school than kids who come from better off backgrounds. There's no question about that. So it does mean that we need to make extra efforts in the schooling we provide in areas of high unemployment and low income to make sure the kids do get the chance that we think they're entitled do to. Do you say the bigger influence would be the parents, parental involvement? Parents have a massive influence on, on their children's education. I mean, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. And I'm actually, there's a chapter in the Creative Schools about the roles of parents. You know, the home has a, has a massive effect. I mean, it's, it, in some cases, of course, as kids get older, their friends and, and peers also have a huge effect. But yes, if parents take an interest or they don't, if they get constructively involved in schools or they don't. And, you know, one of the problems of like <clears throat> just now increasingly <clears throat> is knowing quite who the parents are. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that as family patterns change, uh, you know, the old idea of a nuclear family that people, you know, associate with, you know, the 1950s and the Waltons and all of that, you know, like, you know, a mum and a dad and a, a nuclear family living in a nice house. I mean, it's probably not been true for a very long time. It's less and less true now. Kids live in all sorts of circumstances. You know, they have affluence and have different family relationships. We have more blended families. We have uh, same-sex parents. We have uh, kids who have parents who are both at work and they, you know, they come home and let themselves in. And, you know, so there, there are all sorts of changes yeah. happening in patterns of family life. But I think of the parent as the primary carers, whoever that happens to be, the person most responsible for the child at home and at school. And the home environment has a big effect. And one of the points I'm making in the book is that we're not just talking to teachers, but also to parents and families, to 
talk about how they can become more constructively involved in their kids' education, the way that's supportive mm. um, of what's happening at school and not always in opposition to it. Sir Ken Robinson, I could talk to you forever, sir. I know you got to go. Ten seconds real quick. How do you get a sir in front of your name? Corruption. You know, that's how it normally works. <laughs> that's what I thought, <laughs> you British folk. <laughs> sir Ken Robinson, the book is Creative Schools. Sir, appreciate your time. Keep up the wonderful work. Thank you so much. Appreciate keep, it. Man. Keep Thanks. inspiring. I could have talked forever, but their publicist was like, God, hang it up. Seriously, I could talk to that guy forever. Um, not only the accent, but uh, his TED Talks are phenomenal. He asks such a great question, and I think it's in the one where he says, do schools kill creativity? Um, and I think that's his most viewed one. Why is it that when you have a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, they're asking every question like, what's this? What's that? What do we do with this? Why don't we do it this way? Bop, bop, bop. Asking all these million questions. And then when they turn eight, hey, what'd you do in school day? Nothing. What'd you learn? Nothing. Did you do anything fun? No. Why? What happens when a kid turns eight that they're, they're no longer creative, that they no longer have a, a zest for learning? Nothing inherently. The schools kill it. The schools crush it. A system that was designed for the industrial revolution in a mass production type system has crushed our kids' creativity. And you can imagine the consequences and the results of that. We're living them, right? We have generations now who have gone through the, the corrupted school system that no longer is applicable to today's society. And this is what we're looking at. And you talk about parents. Now, uh, like, uh, so here we go. Here we go. This is my thing. That's why I go on rants. I should just stop there. Otherwise, I'll just keep going. All right, the book is called uh, Creative Schools. That's uh, Ken Robinson, but please watch those TED Talks first. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. It's the Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. The idea that kids go through the school, the whole career, all the eight-year-olds, all the nine-year-olds, all the ten-year-olds, shunting through year by year, it makes it's a kind of organizational device. It's not an educational device because some kids at ten are capable of doing things that other kids at four uh, might be capable of doing. It depends what, what we're asking them to do. Seriously, why, why do we put all the ten-year-olds together? For the whole day, every class. And not only that, but we have all 10-year-olds across the country learning the same thing in the same way at the same time on the same day. That makes no sense at all. That is so destructive, so absurd. If you sat down, and we talked about this the other, the, last week, if you sat down and wrote the income tax code, let's say we had no income tax until today, and we all sat down and said, okay, let's write up the income tax code. And, and people write it up and they say, all right, here it is. And it's, you know, 700,000 pages and you need to hire someone in order to make sense of it for you and your family. Like, that would be absurd. No one would go with that. And same thing today. If we sat down and said, okay, we're going to have a, a public education system. No one would sit down and write it and, and create it to look like it does right now. It doesn't make any sense. If someone said, let's put all, all the seven-year-olds together and then all the eight-year-olds together and, and have them ushered through this education churn as if they were just a, a interchangeable part on an assembly line and then push them out the end 
when, when they've been here long enough. Like, that's so crazy. But that's how we do it. And as Sir Ken Robinson said, um, I, I can't, it's, it, it, we just, we've been doing it this way for a long time. That's what it is. People have just totally, completely given up on any concept of doing it differently because this is the way it's always been done. And our kids lose. Kids lose. So incredibly frustrating. And, and it's, and it's and again, I'm not going to go into it because this is like, I could do this the whole show. People should be outraged. Like teachers should be outraged. Parents should be flipping out. Everyone in the community should be just furious at our public school system and the way it exists today. It is horrible. And anyone who, who uh, uh, achieves in it, achieves in spite. And I mean that for the great teachers who are working uphill as opposed to downhill. right? If they were running downhill, then that'd be, they'd be making their own destiny and teaching kids how they, they think is best and working with kids on an individual level. Like They'd be running downhill to, their kids ed- to your kids' education. But right now, they're uphill through the sludge. And some make it to the top, some succeed, some do great things, but it's in spite of the system. And same thing for kids. Some kids come out and they did great and good for them, but that's in spite of the system. Some kids come out and can't read or write, and that's most of them. At least in San Diego Unified. Most. Unbelievable. But it's the way it's always been, so just keep doing it this way forever. And this, the problem is not enough government. We need more government. We need more federal involvement. You know, it's interesting, the Department of Education has only been around since 1979, okay? So even that hasn't been around that long. But then talking to Ken Robinson, the concept of public education hasn't even been around that long. Like, that's a new phenomenon. So there's nothing that says this is how it, we haven't been doing it this way for thousands of years. (laughs) We've been doing it this way for dozens of years. And we've gotten way off course. Or maybe where the system made sense 100 years ago, it doesn't make sense today. Change it. It's okay to change it. Like Ken said, it's like we need permission to change it. You know, what's also amazing too is I want to tell a story next to Frank. And Frank didn't have any education. And and, and you'll, you'll hear his story, and I don't want to give his last name away because then you'll know the answer. Um, but he had no education, and, and we'll see what he was able to accomplish. The, the, the fact that we think we need the federal government or any level of government to be involved in our kids' education is just so contrary to everything I believe, and it's so frustrating. Slater Radio on Twitter coming up next. The story of Frank. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Story here. I want to thank Zach Thompson and Daniel Smith from Troy University with a story that I've never heard before. It's a story of Frank. Frank was born in 1852, upstate New York. Farm boy. Grew up poor. Just like everyone in 1852. He spent his childhood from as early as you can re- I mean, like, I mean, if you're, if you're born on a farm in 1852, like when do you start working? 
three and a half. Two. I mean, like, this is like, what, like, what, like, is there, like, you can walk and then you got, you know, something in your hand that you're, something you're doing farm work with. So he's pitching hay, shoveling manure, all the rest. He almost never went to school, too busy working on the farm. When he turned 16, he said, I'm out of here. I don't, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Now his mom, secretly on the side, saved up money for her son to go get an education if he wanted one. So he said, oh, sweet. Took the money, spent a semester taking a bookkeeping class at some nearby college. So he tried to find a job after the semester, but his employees, or the, the potential employers, the businesses, the whatever, libraries, they didn't want someone who had classroom hours. They wanted experience. Everyone remembers being there. Right, you graduate high school or college, apply for jobs, and every job requires three years of experience. And you think, well, how do I get experience if for every job you need three years of experience? It's the great conundrum. I don't. I, don't, I, I need. I, <laughs> what do I do? I can't. I can't get in anywhere because I need experience. How do I get the experience? Same thing happened for Frank. Couldn't find a job in bookkeeping. Went back to the farm. Was there for five more years, hating every second of it. But then he heard about an opening at Augsbury and Moore. It was a dry goods store. So Moore was in the store that day when Frank came by looking for a job. Now Moore needed someone just to do some basic grunt work around the shop. Moore talked to him for many. Said, "Okay, fine, you're hired." Frank asked, "How much will I be paid?" Basic question, right? Pretty basic question for a uh, a new employee. How much am I going to be paid? Ready for what Moore said? He said, pay you? You ought to pay us. Huh? <laughs> yeah. You ought to pay us for teaching you the business. When you go to school, you have to pay fees. So I'll tell you what, we won't charge you any tuition fee, but you'll have to work for nothing until we can decide if you're worth anything, and then we'll decide how much. Think about that. Think about that. He's, he's, ask, he's working for this business now, asks how much he's going to get paid, and the guy says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why am I going to pay you? You don't know anything about working here. Now we're going to, we're going to teach you. We're going to give you experience. You should be paying me to work here. I'm being generous by not charging you to work here. I will figure it out in six months if I'm going to pay you anything. And Frank said three months <laughs> done. They signed the deal right there. Yeah. On a handshake, three months, no pay. And he did it worked for nothing. And then after three months, they paid him 350, uh, $3 and 50 a week. Now, let's pause here for a moment. If you went and you shared this first chapter of the story with a Bernie Sanders supporter, what word would they use to describe the relationship between business owner and employee? Exploitation. Is the, that's what I would think. Exploitation. The owner is exploiting Frank. 
Frank didn't feel that way. Now, obviously, this was a different time. I'm not suggesting that we don't pay employees, but I guess that's what internships called, right? Now, and also, even if the business wasn't paying Frank any money, they were paying him an experience. And that's still a commodity today. Frank got $350, then he worked his way up to $6 an hour pretty quickly after that. He was working 82 hours a week. Learned all the clerical work. Then he learned uh, different interior decorating stuff. Then he learned the housekeeping and the bookkeeping, everything. He was so good at his job, other businesses noticed, noticed what a good job he was doing. So they offered him more money. So more gave him a raise. He worked even harder. Then the other businesses started off him, offer him even more money. But more wanted to keep him, gave him a raise. For the first time in Frank's life, he felt in control of his own destiny. Now, he was making so much money now because he was working so hard and was so good. He saved up some money, started his own business. Now, he picked up something. Do you know, do you know who this is, by the way? Do you know where I'm going with Frank? Okay, I'm just wondering if anyone does. You may not, actually. I think most people should. So he picked up something when he was working at Augsbury and more. There was a section of the store that was dedicated to items sold for five cents. And they were older things, the things they were trying to get rid of, right? And the owners never paid much attention to that section. It was an afterthought. But Frank was intrigued by this area. And he said, you know what? I I think there could be a store with just items for five cents. So he opened up a store called the Great Five Cent Store. It failed. Miserably. Lost all his money. Three years later, his brother had a great idea. Charlie, he said, he said, Frank, I love your five cent idea. Sorry it failed. Sorry you lost all your money. Sorry you're shoveling manure again. But I got a great idea that I think might help you. Let's sell things that cost five cents and 10 cents. Frank Woolworth, founder of the Five and Dime. There it is. In 1879, he had two stores, $12,000 in sales. Within 30 years, he had 200 stores, $23 million in sales. Frank never forgot how he got his start. And I bring this up because of all the minimum wage talk that we have today. Frank would stand up on a mountaintop and say, no, stop, don't do this. You are destroying opportunity. He would say, listen, everyone, if there was a law that said more couldn't hire me for zero and he had to hire me for $2 an hour or whatever, he wouldn't have hired me at all. And I'd still be shoveling manure at the farm. I don't want to be shoveling manure at the farm. You are destroying lives with this law. That's what Frank Woolworth would say. Obviously went on to found Woolworths and all the rest. And he said, Slater, how do you know he would say something like that? Because he said something like that. 1892, he wrote a letter to shareholders because he was being criticized that he didn't pay his his clerks enough money. His clerks were mostly women. He said, when a clerk gets so good that she can get better wages somewhere else, let her go. For it does not require skilled and experienced sales ladies to sell our goods. It may look hard to some of you for us to pay such small wages. But there are a lot of girls that live at home that are too proud to work in a factory or do housework. 
and they're glad of a chance to get in a store for experience, if nothing more. And when they get the experience, they're capable of going to a store which can afford to pay better wages. But one thing is certain. We cannot afford to pay good wages and sell goods like we do now. And our clerks ought to know that. Frank knew it. He lived it. Is that clear? Like, does that story make sense? If there was a minimum wage law that said you can't hire Frank for less than $2 an hour, Moore never would have hired him. And he never would have gone on to found the five and dime, make a ton of money, help a lot of people, all the rest. By the way, the five and dime was great for um, poor people. It was basically the Walmart of the day, right? Great for poor people and immigrants. Not that they were the only people who went there, right? But affordable, low-cost goods, convenient, all the rest. It was basically the Walmart of the day. Today, Jerry Brown destroyed opportunity for hundreds of thousands of young people in low-skilled labor. Why does Jerry Brown hate these people so much? Who knows how many of those people would learn the experience learn how the business world works, and go on to found incredible companies like Frank Woolworth did. Those stories, the story of Frank, that will not exist anymore in California. How can it? Who's going to be hired for 15 bucks an hour? That story starting off at the bottom, working your way up, it won't happen. What a shame. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusader. Happy Saturday. Coming up in the next hour, I want to talk. It, it ties actually into the first hour where we talked about gratitude. Talked about having an overflowing heart of gratitude for capitalism and technology and science and prosperity. And we told the story of oranges. Um, please go back to, to theblaze.com slash radio and listen to that first segment. It, it's such an amazing story. Uh, I want to come back with another story next. Similar. Just appreciating the things around us. I want to be critical of, of uh, the, the left's. A new darling economist, uh, Pinkney, Pickety. Um, anyway, we'll we'll do that coming up next. But but just appreciation for the things around us. Let me give you an example of how incredible things are today. On my local show a couple of days ago, we talked with a doctor who was in charge of a whole team that took a man, Ian. He's 24. Six years ago, he was uh, in the Outer Banks in the ocean, and he dove into a wave and and hit something. And became paralyzed from the chest down. So he couldn't move his arms. Doctors inserted a pea-sized microchip into his brain. Connected to a computer. Which is then connected to uh, basically a sleeve on his forearm. And he can think about moving his arm and his hand and his fingers. And it'll do it. He just thinks about it. He thinks about it. <laughs> and the microchip picks up the brain waves or whatever. And then 
this computer sends these pulses to this thing on his sleeve, which fire on just the right muscles so that his hand moves. So we talked to the doctor from Ohio State who's in charge of this whole thing. It's crazy. And I'll never forget what, uh, my opening question to him. My opening question was, um, are you as amazed by this as I am? And he said, yes. He said, he said I got into my field of, um, of medicine focusing on keeping the muscles in, let's just say the arm, because that's the circumstance, keeping the muscles in the arm of a paralyzed person alive, basically, so that maybe one day, well after I'm long and dead and gone, some really smart people smarter than me will be able to figure out how to bring those muscles back to life. Does that make sense? So he's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to maybe work on the arm and keep the muscles moving, keep the blood flowing, so that maybe one day someone will come up with something that can, uh, that can result in those uh, muscles being used again. He said, I had no idea that this would happen in my lifetime. He was on the team of doctors who made this happen. Unbelievable. And even he's shocked and amazed at it and, and what the future of, of things like this can bring. It's just tremendous. And again, we kicked off the show real quick. I mentioned um, uh, Calvin Coolidge's son who died from a staph infection. He had a blister on his foot from playing tennis at the White House. And he died of a staph infection because it was still another 10 years before they even invented penicillin. I mean, that wasn't even 100 years ago. Right, it was a hundred years ago from penicillin not being around to you can think I want to move my hand, and and computer chip picks up the brain waves and moves your hand. Like and and by the way, moving hand means he can uh, pick up a cup of coffee and he can drink it. He can uh, swipe a credit card. I mean, like that's precision that that these doctors and engineers have been able to to put together. It's just amazing. And in this short of a time. These last, you know, for all of human history, nothing progressed, right? Nothing at all. Everyone was a farmer. That was it. And you just tried to grow enough food to survive. No progress. Thousands of years. But the last 300 years and really the last 50 years, there's been an explosion of progress. And no one, no one cares. No one appreciates why or how we've had that explosion. But that's where we come in. That's where you come in. That's your job. We have to have an overflowing heart of gratitude for capitalism and technology and science. That's where conservatives need to shine because we're the grateful ones. And if we are grateful, then people won't take things for granted and people won't be so entitled anymore. And people won't attack the people who are making this progress possible and people will stop turning to the government to solve all their problems because people need to realize that the government doesn't create things like this. Government doesn't make our lives better. Free people operating in a free market economic system, in a capitalist system. That's what makes our lives better. Just an incredible story. Um, Now, that's what's going on now, but let's not forget about what happened before, and that's what I want to come back with next. Uh, A story of things we take for granted. I'll give it away. Blood. Blood transfusions. Do you know how they used to do blood transfusions? Do you know when blood transfusions first started? Not that long ago. Tell you the story next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome everyone to Comedy Night at University College. Let's be very considerate to our first comedian, Jason Berkelman. All right. What a good looking crowd we have tonight. Oh, okay. Sorry for that. Anyway, I just broke up with my girlfriend. Your heteronormative relationship is exclusionary and prejudicial. Okay, um, so I, uh, I just flew in, guys, and the snacks on airplane. What, are you allergic to peanuts? Fear of flying was on a list of trigger warnings we sent you. Who are these people? We're the victims of your hate speech. We'll need to secure a safe place for our protesters. They seem angry. And here we go with the tone policing. Acknowledge your white privilege. I was going to with some of my jokes. Like this one. I went on vacation in Jamaica. Racist! With my dad. Patriarchist! He smoked pot, guys! It's funny! Mansplain the bigot! Jason, there's at least eight different genders in the audience right now. They're not all guys. Well, that, that, now I feel like I can't say anything! Of course you can, Jason. This is a free speech zone. There's at okay. least eight oh, different genders in the audience. You, you can't say, guys, uh, it's funny because it's true. Now I love it when it when it how are you sorry thanks for being here I love it when it goes uh, another step further I love when the left eats their own so there's a white privilege conference going on for teachers and, and activists in Philadelphia um, that's right a white privilege conference and the keynote speaker uh, super far left professor guy right white guy gets up does his speech. Now, one of the attendees who's an Asian woman, or I don't even, am I allowed to say that? Maybe I'm, I don't, I don't know what she identifies as. Should ask her, but she looks like an Asian woman. She wrote on Twitter, great keynote by James Lowen. You ready? Are you prepared for this? But going over time allotted is another example of white supremacy. So, the professor wrote back, this is what he wrote back. Dr. Moore told me, just before I started, to take one hour. I took exactly 53 minutes. Okay? So, the woman writes back, a white man's defensiveness instead of accepting responsibility. I... I love that exchange so much. That is one of my all-time favorite exchanges. That exchange is everything. That is the entire PC microaggression culture in a nutshell. And the entire truth means nothing culture in a nutshell. She blames the white guy for going over time. He says, I didn't go over time. And then she responds with, oh, white man's defensiveness, white supremacy. Wow, that's amazing. Love it. Love everything about that. <laughs> uh, you're going over the time allotted is an uh, example of your white supremacy. I, I, I didn't go over my time allotted. Ah, oh, racist. <laughs> Truth means nothing. Now, this woman's crazy, right? She also wrote on Twitter, a white woman telling a black woman to close the door at a workshop sh- session is another example of white supremacy. Okay. 
But I just love it because the professor, who's obviously sympathetic to this point of view, got called a white supremacist, and he's only got himself to blame. And there's nothing he can say. Because if he does, he's white-splaining or showing his patriarchy or white privilege or whatever. It's incredible. You know, we've been talking about this, this video of the five foot eight white guy going to the University of Washington and asking students what they would say if he told them that he was a six foot five Chinese seven-year-old girl. And they all had trouble telling him he wasn't. They could they couldn't get themselves to say he was. Now, one girl, in all fairness, one girl drew the line at height. All right, she said, because he went one at a time. He said, well, you know, what would you say if I told you I was a woman? And they're like, oh, that's great. Good for you. What would you do if I told you I was, a, I was a Chinese woman? Okay, if that's how you identify. What would you do if I told you I was seven years old? Okay, that's uh, good, good for you. What would you do if I told you I was six foot five? And the one girl's like, nah, you're not six foot five. So he says, all right, hold on. So you agree that I am a Chinese girl in the first grade, but you won't agree that I'm a six foot five Chinese girl in the first grade. Like that's the, that's too far. And you can just see with each question that these kids get their, their worldview shatter, right? <laughs> Come into question. So we talked all about how um, tolerance is now placed as a higher virtue than truth. But in reality, tolerance has completely replaced truth as a virtue. Truth isn't even in the equation anymore. Let me say it again. Truth isn't even in the equation anymore. This woman says that the speaker went over time. He says, I went for 53 minutes out of my 60-minute alive. White privilege! So the fact that he didn't go over time means nothing to this woman. Just like the fact that this is a five foot eight white guy who's 30 years old meant nothing to the fact that he was saying I'm a six foot five Chinese girl in the, in, uh, who's seven. Truth means nothing anymore. Can, I, can we talk about truth here for a second? A truth and perspective. I want to combine both of these things that we talk a lot about on this show. But I think it's important. I want to share another story here, and, and you're going to say, Slater, these two stories have nothing to do with each other. They're the same. On my Facebook page, you can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I put the video up of the six foot five Chinese woman and Monty. He didn't see anything wrong with it. Didn't see it. And you can read the exchange for yourself. Feel free to chime in. Be nice. My point of posting the video and of talking about it isn't to say that kids should be mean to transsexuals or whoever. The problem is if you can't tell someone that they're not seven years old, when they're 30, like if you can't get yourself to be like, ah, oh, listen, 30 year old, you're not seven. If you can't get yourself to do that, then you'll probably struggle with other questions of truth that do matter in our lives. Give an example. Three years ago, Thomas Piketty, he wrote a book called Capital in the 21st Century. He wrote it, became the left's darling economist. And he claimed it's all about income inequality. And, all. and he claimed that inequality today is as bad as it was 100 years ago. And obviously the left jumped on it and, and, and held him up. I'll quote. He said, and, and see if you can visualize this. I know numbers are tough on the radio. He said, the poorer half, half of the population 
are as poor today as they were in the past. With barely 5% of total wealth in 2010, just as in 1910. Basically, all the middle class managed to get its hands on was a few crumbs. All right, so visualize what he's saying here. He's saying today, or 2010, whatever, today, the bottom half, the poorest half of Americans have possess 5% of America's wealth. Okay? It's the same as in 100 years ago, 1910. So he concludes that People today, the poorest poorest 50% of Americans today are just as poor. That's what he said. The poorest half of the population today are just as poor as they were in the past. We cannot let someone get away with that sentence. At all. Because if we let that sentence pass, everything's fair game. Everything's fair game. That, that Anything that could stem off of that lie off of that false foundation that all the middle class has managed to get its hand on as a few crumbs. Anything that comes from that is as much of a lie as a five foot eight guy saying he's a six foot five Chinese seven year old. They're both lies. It's about truth. That's what we have to get back to. All right, let me make this example here because I, we're going to do this for a lot here. So hang, buckle up. Honest question. How much money? would I have to pay you for you to give up using a refrigerator for a year? Think about that. How much money would I have to give you for you to not use a refrigerator for a year in your house? So how much does a fridge cost? I think you buy a cheap one for like 500 bucks probably, right? Probably more expensive for a thousand dollars. And you go way up there too, but um, it costs about $5 a month to keep your fridge cold. So let's just say a fridge costs $1,000 a year. We'll go with it. Your first year, right? Then it's, you don't have to buy it anymore. Now it's just uh, electricity. But anyway, thousand, let's say it's 1000 bucks. So would you accept 10 times that to give it up? I'll give you 10000 Would you take that deal? Honest question. Would you take $10,000 right now and in return, you can't use a refrigerator for a year? Probably not. Like most people probably, I mean, maybe if you're like college kid, you're like, whatever, I have Chinese food every day anyway, or ramen. Most people wouldn't take that offer. Most people say, no, I I need my refrigerator. And that's because people value refrigeration more than it actually costs. Right? You you value refrigeration and and what it costs, which is like a thousand bucks, five bucks a month. You value that more than $10,000 cash. You put a lot of value in refrigeration, as we should. And the reason I ask this question and bring it up is because 100 years ago, it didn't exist. 100 years ago, there was no refrigerator for poor people or for rich people. So, pickety, what are you talking about when you say that poor people today are just as bad off as poor people 100 years ago? That's impossible. Because everyone today has a refrigerator. A refrigerator that everyone puts a lot of value in. I just offered someone $10,000 to not use it for a year. No one took me up on the offer. So refrigeration is very valuable. Everyone has it. 
No one had it 100 years ago. And you're going to tell me that poor people today are just as poor as they were 100 years ago? Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Listen, this isn't some random uh, uh, scribblings of a blogger. This is the, the darling leftist economist who's saying that the poorest half of Americans today are just as poor as those 100 years ago. Total garbage. Total garbage. And again, his argument is because the poorest today, poorest 50% own 5% of the wealth, just like the poorest 50% 100 years ago owned 5% of the wealth. Therefore, just as poor. No way. Because the poorest 50% today possess things that didn't exist 100 years ago. Air conditioning, penicillin, airplanes, television, internet. The so-called crumbs that Pickney's talking about, the crumbs of today are a lot bigger than the crumbs of 100 years ago. I, I got to take, I'm not even close to, I got a lot more. In the, and again, I want to, I want to tie it all back to what does this have to do with a six foot five Chinese first grader and the concept of truth? That's the most important thing. That's what we got to always bring it back to and not let people get away with total garbage like that. We got to make sure our foundation is on truth. Mike Slater show spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. So, Pickety, left's favorite economist today. Uh, let me read this line so we can all be on the same page. The poorer half of the population are as poor today as they were in the past, with barely five percent of total wealth in two thousand ten, just as nineteen ten. Basically, all the middle class managed to get its hands on were a few crumbs. Total, absolute garbage, nonsense, filth. Don't let that, you do not let that lie pass. We are so much wealthier today. So a few months ago, we told the story of Dr. Schemmelweis. He was a doctor um, who was excommunicated from, from medicine. Why? Women kept dying after childbirth, not from the birth, but afterwards they would get a terrible infection and, and die. And no one knew why. And Schemmelweis, this is 1850s, 1840s, I think. He was, which is only 150 years ago. He was the first person to say, um, Maybe when we perform autopsies on dead bodies in the morning and then deliver babies in the afternoon, maybe we should wash our hands in between. He was fired, kicked out. The other doctors said that that's, that was a Jewish, Jewish superstition, kicked him out of medicine. It wasn't until a couple decades later that when people were like, hmm, maybe he was right, maybe he was onto something. Washing hands. I'm looking at a, a picture here of kids in New York City around 1900 
playing in a, a, a cobblestone street. There's a dead horse next to them. Hasn't eaten in weeks. Dead. There's a, a sewage line, like a sewage trough going down on the curb. And there's about eight or nine kids, all barefoot, playing in the sewer line around this dead horse. New York City. Now, germ theory didn't exist until around 1900. The idea that germs make you sick. That, that, that There's no concept of that. Now, this is important because capitalism has led to this progress. Scientific progress, technological progress, social progress. It's all because of capitalism. I'll give you one last example. I got two minutes. Blood. Blood types. Blood types first discovered in 1901. There were no blood transfusions because refrigerators weren't invented yet, as we just talked about in the last segment. Uh, There was no, I mean, the, the only blood transfusions that ever happened, I'm not even kidding, they would have a donor stand there they take an artery out and and you stand there and you they would sew it into the patient and then they stand and then the blood would go, be like they'd sew the artery into the patient's vein until they didn't need the transfusion i mean it's crazy today 15 million blood donations a year the shelf life of blood is about 5 to 6 weeks and a patient gets a blood transfusion every two seconds. That changes over two years. That's it. Or excuse me, 100 years. That's it. So <clears throat> economists have a difficult job, an impossible job. How do you calculate that? How do you calculate the increased standard of living of blood transfusions? Where 100 years ago, no one could get one. And today, everyone can get one if you need it. So to say that a poor person today is just as poor as 100 years ago because they have the same amount of wealth, the same percentage of wealth, that's absurd. There were no blood transfusions 100 years ago. Today, like, whatever. Not even a big deal. So you can't calculate that. So when you talk about wealth, and now we're not as wealthy today, or just as poor as we were 100 years ago, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So again, back to the video of the 5'8 white guy telling college kids he's a 6'5 Chinese girl in the first grade. It's about truth. I don't care if a five foot eight guy thinks he's a Chinese woman in the first grade. I don't care. Live and let live. But if someone isn't able to come to terms with saying, uh, no, he's not. If a person is so rationally disabled that they can't accept the truth of height and age, let alone gender and ethnicity, then there's no such thing as truth anywhere else. And if there's no truth, then there's no science. And if there's no science, there's no technology. And if there's no technology, there's no progress. It's amazing the left calls themselves progressives. But they champion a philosophy that cannot result in progress. Irrational, subjective, you know, like it's all relative truth. Relative truth cannot result in progress. Only absolute truth and the search for it can lead to progress, scientific and social. Progressivism is nothing to celebrate. Progress is. That's, progress is something to celebrate. But progressivism, progressivism and progress have nothing to do with it. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
This is Mike Slater. CBS Sunday morning. They uh, they do such a good job. Steve Hartman, my favorite of all the reporters. And I'm so jealous of Steve because he gets to tell stories like this. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I, I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Well, basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamal was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side by side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, you know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, he, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder <laughs> mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this one, set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? What is that story? You kidding me? Well, let, all right, let's let's break that down here. Let's talk about what's happening. Think about that dirty cop. He lied. He started the day and said, I'm going to arrest someone for dealing drugs. And he was driving around, found a black guy on the sidewalk, and arrested him for dealing drugs. Made it all up. Went back to the office, sat down, wrote out the report, made every single thing up. A complete work of fiction. And threw, uh, what was his name, Jamel? Threw Jamel in jail for four years. Holy cow. Like I, when, I, when I heard that he was arrested, I was thinking, you know, arrested, booked, fined, whatever. Four years he spent in prison. Wow, imagine you're there. Now imagine you're Jamel. Four years you're in jail. Everyone asks, what are you in here for? And you're like, it doesn't matter. I didn't do it. 
Oh, yeah, sure. That's what they all say. Family members having to tell everyone that their, their son or their brother's in jail for selling drugs. But he didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, sure he didn't. Sure he didn't. But he really didn't do it. The cops straight up framed him, lied about the entire thing. Jamel lost everything, lost his job, lost his family, his reputation, and the most precious resource of all four years of his life. I mean, can you... I'm not in the business of ranking wrongs, but like of the ways you can wrong someone that's near the top, right? I mean, that's pretty bad. But now that cop and the falsely accused are best friends. What? But here's the best part. This is the part that stood out to me. And if there's something else that stood out to you, I'd love to hear it. 1-800-760-KFMB. But this is the part that stood out to me. Hartman asked Jamel why he apologized. Did you catch that? Hartman said, did you apologize for his sake or your sake? Fair question. Fair question. Because when you're victimized by something, when you're full of hate, it changes you. Right? That's that's why did you, Jamel, did you apologize for your sake? Right? Because when you hate, changes who you are. You can't think straight. You can't walk straight. You're fuming. You're not yourself. So did you have to apologize for your own sake, Jamel? And Jamel said, yeah, yeah, sure. I apologize. But for my sake, but mostly for our sake, not us, our, like, like humanity for the, for the sake of humanity. I for the sake of mankind. I apologize. For the sake of America, I apologize. This is what MLK said about forgiveness. He said that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and so on, you see this goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere somebody must have a little sense and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil, because that's the tragedy of hate. It doesn't cut itself off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. And somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. And that's what Jamel did. So we all need to do more of now. We could talk about race relations in America. We could talk about black lives matter. Easy for me to say, but I see this black lives matter group as a group fueled by righteous motives. Fueled by a real injustice that they've seen or experienced. but it's fueled by hate, right? Look at Jamel. He was angry, right? He said, I wanted to go find this guy. I don't want to beat him up. He was fueled by righteous motives. This guy took four years of my life away from me, destroyed everything I had. He was a victim of a real injustice. But at first he was fueled by hate. And then he realized that that wasn't the way to go. I got to forgive. 
And what these Black Lives Matter protesters don't understand is that they have the upper hand. They have the upper hand. In ancient Rome, the most honorable thing that you could do is when you have the sword, your sword, over someone's neck and you're ready to kill them. And if they really deserve to be killed, the most honorable thing you can do is not to kill them. The concept that you have the power to kill someone, but you don't, that makes you a strong person. That's what makes you an honorable person. When you could kill someone, but you don't. MLK said the same thing. He said an opportunity will come when you can destroy your enemy, but you must not. Black Lives Matter has the power to cause a lot of trouble. But the most honorable thing they can do is forgive. Or at the very least, reorient themselves to be fueled by love and not hate. But forget about Black Lives Matter. Our own lives. If these two men can be friends, these two guys can bury the hatchet. You kidding me? Man, we, 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 each, all of us, everyone, myself, need to either apologize for something. If you're like the cop. Or forgive for something. If you're like Jamel. But don't even do it for your sake. Or for their sake. Do it for our sake. I love the way Jamel said that. He's like, no, I did it like, like our, like <laughs> not us. It was our, like humanity's sake. I forgave. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here today. Um, I hope we talked about some important things. Let, let's now let's not and talk about politics. Now it's important. Um, but let, let's put our political strategy hats on, which which we don't do a ton on this show, but we we got a couple minutes here. So next week, a couple days, we got Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. These are Trump states. So Trump's going to have another great week. It's about 170-ish delegates, um, which is as many as California. I got an asterisk here, though, on Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania has 71 delegates, but 54 of them are unbound. So here's what happens when you go to vote in Pennsylvania. We may have some Pennsylvania listeners here who can back this up. You go to the polls and you vote for the nominee that you want, right? The person you want to be president. Donald Trump, Kasich, or Cruz. Whoever wins the state gets 17 delegates. Okay? 17 bound delegates. When they go to Cleveland in July, they have to vote for whoever wins the state. Okay? But when you go to the ballot, there's also going to be a bunch of other names there. Those names are the delegates. Other delegates. The 54 delegates. Now, there's no way of knowing, based on the ballot, 
which delegate supports which candidate. So you're just going to see a list of names. You'll see John Smith and Albert Einstein and Chris Johnson or whatever. And you don't know if Chris Johnson supports Cruz, Trump, or Kasich. You don't know. But those are the 54 delegates that you're voting for, the other 54 delegates in Pennsylvania, and those delegates are unbound. They can vote for whomever they want. Now, the campaigns will do the best they can to get the word out, right? They're going to make voter guides. So let's say you're a Cruz supporter. The Cruz campaign is going to give you a little voter guide that says, hey, when you go to the polls, vote for Ted Cruz and also vote for Chris Johnson and, and uh, Terry Andrews and uh, 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 there's a bottle of water here, Crystal Geyser, which actually would work. Um, these are the Cruz delegates. Now, Cruz, as if, if history proves correct, uh, we'll be ahead of the game here and he'll have these voter guides and he'll get his supporters out there and he'll, and he'll get his supporters to know what delegates to vote for. Let's say a Trump supporter, maybe Trump doesn't have that ground game. A Trump supporter goes to the polls, votes for Donald Trump. That's fine and dandy, but doesn't know what delegates to vote for. They don't know who the Trump delegates are. I don't even know if there are Trump delegates, to be honest. If you wanted to become a delegate, uh, if you wanted to be on the ballot to become a delegate in Pennsylvania, that ended a long time ago. So if Trump is just figuring this out now, it's too late. I don't even know if there are any Trump delegates in Pennsylvania. I'm sure there are some. But let's say you're, you're a first-time voter and you're voting for Trump. You don't know who the delegates are. You never got a Trump voter guide. So you're not going to vote for any of those delegates. But those delegates make are the 54 of the 71. That's most of them by far. So this could get ugly. Tr- Trump may win the state, Pennsylvania. And he'll only get 17 delegates, maybe. That could possibly, that could happen. And Cruz gets 54 of them. Because people, because Trump supporters didn't know which delegates were Trump supporters. Is the system rigged? I don't know. You decide. Yeah, I read something the other day that, uh, actually, let me pull this up here. If you have a second. Um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin primary. Okay, New York primary. Okay, yeah. So, Wisconsin. Cruz had 531,000 votes. 531,000 total votes in Wisconsin, which he won. Donald Trump won New York, dominated New York. 524,000 votes, basically 525. So, he had 6,000 fewer votes in New York than Cruz had in Wisconsin, now think about this. Trump had 6,000 fewer votes in New York than Cruz did in Wisconsin. But Donald Trump in New York got 89 delegates. Cruz got 36. So Cruz and Trump in each of these states got the same number of voters. We'll call it even. We'll call it a tie. But Trump gets twice as many delegates in, in New York than, than in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's how the system works. I mean, you could make the argument that that's rigged. If that's your definition of rigged, I don't. Uh, I wouldn't use that definition. I wouldn't make that argument. But anywho, just worth thinking about. So Pennsylvania next week has a big asterisk next to it. The big stand for Cruz is going to be Indiana, which is the next week. If he does really well there, then California 
uh, will be his last stand. But it really comes if he doesn't do well in Indiana, if Cruz doesn't do well, if Trump wins, then it's going to be hard to do even anything in California. So Indiana in two weeks is Cruz's last stand. And then, or I should say final, second to last stand. And then it's all about California, baby. Here I am in San Diego, and it's going to be crazy. But we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Slater Crusaders, I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.